it came from the bowels of the internet. In the early 2000s, countless disaffected young men flocked to online subcultures like the alt-right, the Manosphere and the Red Pill movement to vent their frustrations with feminism, queer liberation and racial diversity. With so much rage and resentment at the modern world simmering away online, fed by conspiracies and steadily growing more extreme, it was only a matter of time until it bubbled over and spilled out into the wider world. Today, many of those ideas and beliefs have filtered through into the mainstream. They have inspired terrorist attacks across the world that have taken hundreds of lives. Politicians repeat their talking points. Their most prominent proponents, such as the British-American media personality and alleged human trafficker, Andrew Tate, have global audiences. Tate, who converted to Islam in 2020, is part of a new wave of far-right figures who have ditched the movement's traditional Islamophobia for admiration. As I wrote with my colleague Rasha al in a recent piece for New Lines called The Red Pillars of Islam, conservative Muslims and anti-woke Christians have begun to find common ground in their shared battle against feminism, queer liberation, so-called globalism and secular modernity. I'm Lydia Wilson from New Lines magazine. This is The Lead. I'm joined today by Mustafa Ayad, Executive Director for Africa, the Middle East and Asia at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a non-profit that monitors extremist ideologies. Also here today is my colleague and co-author on the article, Rasha al Mustafa, Rasha, how are you doing today? Doing well, Lydia. Thank you. Fine. Thank you. (laughs) Now, part of the problem with reporting on these sorts of online movements like the Manosphere is that they're pretty impenetrable to outsiders. And that is by design because they aren't groups as such with a formal structure, clear boundaries, a hierarchy or whatever. That means that they can be easily pinned down and discussed. And so I think before we get onto the shifting relationships that these movements have with Islam, we're going to need to dig into some of the background of how they operate and how they emerged in the first place. It's probably better to imagine them as kind of networks of like-minded people which bleed into one another and influence each other's thinking. They are united by certain things, and the most obvious is the misogyny, but there's also the attitudes to LGBTQ via sort of traditional gender roles, let's say, or traditional family structures. And also, sadly, what's ubiquitous through all these conspiracies is anti-Semitism as well. And I'll just let you you all know what what my basis for this is, because I actually spent a year at a computer lab at Cambridge University studying the online far right. We were researching specifically the Manosphere because it had come out of an observation that misogyny was fueling a lot of a huge variety of online subcultures, even hacking and those sorts of cybercrime subcultures. And so we set up a new research network to to, to, to kind of probe specifically the, the manosphere to understand how misogyny was spreading. So that's kind of how I summarize it. It's they're, they're people linked by misogyny and this kind of nostalgia for a previous patriarchal structure to society. Rasha, would you agree with that? How would you characterize such a loose kind of concept? Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. 
this is where it starts with the, the, the most evident element that unites them is the misogyny and the nostalgia for the traditional type of lifestyle. They even have the term trad wife when they describe women. And this is kind of where they intersect with other communities that they might not on other, on other issues. But it starts with the conspiracy that there are some, there is some global force that wants to weaken men and elevate women to keep men weak. And the red pill comes in here, conspiracy, different conspiracy theories come in here, but this is the point that unites them all. And this is the, this is the point of discussion that started a lot of, with a lot of these networks and then branched into other things. And then they found that they also relate on other issues. Most evident is also anti-Semitism. So this time, this is where we have the global, the some kind of global power that is trying to keep men weak and blind and submissive. And also we have now groups that agree that there's another global force or perhaps the same global force that controls the finances, that influences war, that controls the media. And when all this came together, they thought that they really had discovered something and the unity or the bond between them created. So it's it's kind of going from network to almost a cult. That's, mm. I feel that's where they are right now. And, you know, some of that is kind of ancient. The idea of shadowy bankers ruling the world is, an, is centuries old Absolutely. and Semitic trope. Yeah, yeah. But then some of it's new. I mean, we've got the Matrix kind of making its appearance as well. I mean, these specific online subcultures, what do you think, let's call them a movement, the Manosphere movements. When do you feel like they really started? How did they grow into what we have today? So they, I believe that if we go back into in, some readings, it was a reaction in the, from the 60s and 70s to women liberation movements. And as women's rights improved, this became kind of the norm. So that period from the 90s, 2000s, these men were growing more frustrated because they could not say things. They could not express these feelings. They could not express these frustrations. Whereas women continued to, to progress, even though it was very gradual. And then we had the Me Too movement, the rise of Donald Trump. And honestly, just bashing women became kind of acceptable. And because there was such a media frenzy about it all over the globe, we would find Donald Trump and other provocative characters hosted on night shows and in interviews saying what they wanted to say. And it was all kind of wrapped under the pretext of free speech or we're breaking the norms. And this is where it kind of went from underground, where they were not allowed to talk, to becoming more mainstream. And this is where they began saying what they wanted to say on social media, using their real names. And we found the manosphere here went from being this, went, went from being from, let's say, 8chan and into more mainstream websites where people yeah. ended up really seeing, okay, what is happening? Well, Mustafa, you've been tracking these movements and uh, other extremist movements for, for years now, practically on a daily basis, it seems like, from your research. How do you see that recent rise in popularity and, as Rash has just pointed out, the mainstreaming of it? Yeah, I mean, I think Russia has hit all of the sort of timeline with one exception of Gamergate in 2015. Uh, yes. A lot of these communities were very steeped in online global Chan culture, which is essentially something that was born out of 4chan and Reddit and sort of online trolling, the hacking element, where 
there was pushback against feminism in video games. Yeah. A lot of these guys have a lot of time on their hands and a lot of time to be spent online. And so they were imbibing from all these different influences while at the same time, very steeped in sort of what they believe to be tradition. Mm-hmm. And that tradition is one that is hell bent on a, a time and place where there was a patriarch and that was it. There was no challenge to that patriarchy in any sense or form. And so being based, quote unquote, based using the term that came out of the, the, the West Coast. So out of Oakland by the rapper Little B, which literally means, you know, when someone, when someone uh, smokes crack cocaine and then does whatever they feel. Yeah. Uh, using that term patriarchy is based and it's almost as if that is what they're smoking well definitely and yes based is a very important concept we'll we'll probably be coming to later and and that kind of status in the world that patriarchy gives you if you're a man that is one element but we haven't yet mentioned the incels and i think that's another really clear strand over the past few decades of of where where these manosphere movements have come from which is the self help movement which started in the kind of 60s 70s as quite straightforward dating advice but they weren't claiming any objective truths they were like if you follow this you'll you'll get a girl kind of thing it was it was advice it was self-help at some point along the way this morphed with the help of a lot of pseudoscientific theories on evolutionary psychology and those sorts of things it morphed into this is what all women like because they are women women want this and this is what men should provide it turned into these sorts of more metaphysical truths about men and women and gender and that's when things become less easy to challenge and debate because if they've taken on a scientific truth value you you can't you can't really argue with that person anymore oh no you're a woman you would say that that's the kind of thing that they could say that's that you know that, that these things are established and they can no longer be challenged and so incels involuntary celibate for people who haven't heard of it people who can't get a girl can't can't find sex in any way and have found similar people online to share sympathy to share ideas to share tips they found themselves sharing exactly the same conspiracies of why they're in this situation. It's because of feminism. It's because of human rights discourse. It is, again, shadowy figures controlling the world and feeding the world these sorts of ideologies, they call them, things like feminism, cultural Marxism. And that's why they can't get a girl. So yes, there's patriarchy, we're losing our status in the world as men, and that's to be feared. But there's also the kind of driver of this world isn't giving me what I want, which is a woman. How important do you think both of those strands are, or do you see them as part of the same thing? I Have think it's it's part of the overall ecosystem, right? When we're talking about the manosphere, you're, you're, you're talking about an amalgamation of, of a number of communities, quote unquote, men's rights activists, uh, men going their own way, the MGTO movement pickup artists, and of course, as you just mentioned, involuntary celibates or incels, they're, they're, they're all united by hateful and abusive speech directed at women. 
and ultimately a modern world that they say is clearly in decline and threatening their existence as men. Hmm. And so that part of it stretches across all those different communities. Yeah. And there's different levels of grievances. Now, the incel part of this, of course, has been involved in terrorist attacks in the West or mass shootings in the West, most notably in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And poses a threat. I would say that a majority of the incel movement, misog- misogynistic and hateful as it is, however, does not rise to that level of threat. Yeah. And it, there's different threats across regions, of course. We don't have numbers, for instance, on incels in the in the Middle East and North Africa region. But what we do know is that they have their own sub-community yeah. that go by muzzy cells. Muzzy cells. Tell us more. So muzzy cells are essentially a subset of incels that are Muslim. Mm-hmm. that will refer to those that are commonly defined as their enemies or providing them sort of a certain level of frustration and anger, women typically, as kafir. Mm-hmm. So they'll mm-hmm. use terms like takfir and kafir as a means to define their quote-unquote enemies. So we're seeing a terminology transfer between... I mean, would you say takfir was we could we could say that's mainly seen in Islamist circles? I mean, that's the that's the technique they use to define who's in and out in the in group, the out group, right? Correct. So we're seeing it bleed into this more manosphere terminology. One hundred percent. And I think, and this is gonna sound like I'm 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 philosophizing here, but like overall, what the internet has allowed is this diffusion of thoughts, concepts, terms across cultures, across language that allows people to imbibe from and learn from other quote unquote traditions in order for them to then redefine and or double down on long held beliefs that are such as misogyny or anti-LGBTQ or anti-Semitism. So you get white supremacists that are imbibing from the Islamist Melu, mm. things like the Order of the Nine Angles, or you get the reverse where you have fervent sort of supporters of pan-Arabist movement or Bathists that are imbibing from the white supremacy movement or the third mm. Reich and using the language of the third Reich to define themselves. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, this is what, of course, we're coming to, which is this mutual newfound respect and admiration between different extremist groups. But before we do go on, I just do think it's important to make this point. These, these far right movements in the West have until very recently been focused on Islam and Muslims as the enemy. And that is still true of an awful lot of people inside the movements. And the myth of the Great Replacement, which you've mentioned, that that alleges a conspiracy to replace white European populations through immigration from Muslim-majority countries, was and remains a huge talking point in these sorts of far-right subcultures. And it's inspired 
a lot of terrorism, a lot of violence against Muslim communities, like the 2019 Christchurch mass shooting in New Zealand it was explicitly about this. But as we're getting on to, the same time many of these movements, other talking points have been adopted by extremist movements in the Muslim world. As Mustafa, you, you've just been talking about, when did you first notice that this was happening? So, I mean, this has been going on since 2017 and, be, and, and before. If you look at, for instance, the September 11th attacks, you had Ku Klux Klan members in the United States say, I wish, and leaders say, I wish our men had the quote-unquote balls to mm. conduct an attack like that. So right. Always, so right. there's always been an affinity for the type of violence that could be committed in the name of Islamism. They might have called it based if it was a word at that point. 100%. And it is now very much based. Mm. Mm. And from that, that translated to message boards. That then translated, obviously, when the growth of Telegram, 4chan. And you have a group of, we're now in 2023, we have a group of youth or young people who have essentially been online their entire lives, who have witnessed massive drastic shifts in the way that social media platforms have pushed cultures or broken down boundaries. And the same has happened in extremist communities. Yeah. And this means that you have Islamists in, in white supremacist communities yeah. watching or listening, or even taking part. And you have the same white supremacists in Islamist communities watching and similarly taking part in debates or attacks or even learning. Well, there's then, an element of things to bear in mind. Well, and then, of course, it's not just observation, is it? And now we get on to probably the most famous example of what we're talking about which is Andrew Tate. He just didn't show admiration. He went much further and converted to Islam. He's so, and given his huge following, he's probably the most prominent example of this emerging alliance between Islamists and the new right. What do you think his conversion means for the future of both these movements? What does it indicate about the potential for a broader realignment? Russia, what do you think? Before I comment on Andrew Tate, I want to go back a little bit just to comment on, on incels, and then it kind of feeds into it directly. Okay. So the Muslims, Muslim cells, are in the Muslim incels. Their their story is very unique and very different, also from the West, because in the West, an incel is someone, as you mentioned, Lydia, struggles to get a sexual partner for whatever reasons. They blame society, but there's also a lot of self hate too. You talk to these young men, and I've talked to hundreds of them. They will tell. They would say we're ugly, we're poor, we have nothing to lure women in. So we're angry that the second tier of women, women that are, let's say, by social standards, not very attractive, still don't want us. These women owe us because they're not better. And this is sort of how the discussion starts and why they're so angry. And But the, for Muslim men in the Middle East, in North Africa, this is a secondary problem because of the patriarchal, stru patriarchal structure in the Middle East. Men can always find a partner, can always find a wife. Arranged marriages are still very, very dominant. They're angry that there's a certain type of women 
that they do desire, but they cannot get. So on one hand, the Muslim community has offered this solution where men can have access to women whenever they want because of arranged marriages and whatnot. And, and we find and that. this, yeah, that's, that and conversation really picked up in these circles saying that, well, then Muslim communities actually have a solution for this. And here's when Andrew Tate kind of came in. So Andrew Tate is unique in a way that he does hold, he does hold men accountable, meaning that his, his method of self-help is you can sit there, be a young man and complain about your financial status and say, women don't want me because I'm, um, I'm not good looking or because I'm poor. Well, you can change that. You can hit the gym seven days a week. You can work on your physique. You can work on your charisma. He claims to have ways and through his Hustle University program, we can talk about that later if you want, to help young men learn how to earn loads of money and become wealthy. Mm. And, then he's, and then in addition to that, he has taken, he was very much uh, inspired by what he saw in the Muslim community. Now, this goes even before he converted back in 2020 when he said that Islam has the solution for, for modern society. A lot of the malices of the modern society, Islam has the solution for it. And what he perceives as prioritizing men and making them superior to women in that Islam has a very significant role for women in that they should be the traditional wife who is meant to be taken care of, meant to be supported. And with this and with the other um, elements we spoke about regarding anti-woke and anti-LGBTQ rights and all of this, he found that his interpretation of Islam vindicated his pre-existing beliefs and that led to his conversion. I, for one, don't think his conversion is necessarily a, a facade or just, a, or just, you know, just the means to just a, a claim to fame. I, I actually think, believe, yeah. I, I actually, I think he's sincere with it. I don't think he necessarily follows it. But I think when it comes to this core belief, I think he does believe in this. And this is why he converted. Also within Islam, the fact that once you convert, all your sins are completely eradicated you can have you can start all over and he's been supported by the clergy constantly saying take it step by step you know you don't have to be a perfect muslim right away and we've seen this and we've reported on this and that's what made his that's what's made him very unique in that sense and he's also stuck to it it's been over yeah. almost a almost a year now has it been a year um he's been shown he's been seen with the quran he's yeah. quoted everyone from Prophet Muhammad to Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, he's really dug into it. Uh, mm. And he's talked about, and the way he talks about Islam, he, he uses the word faith, which I think is very, very smart, very important. When he talks about God, he doesn't say Allah, he says God, in a way of showing people that as long as you're religious and as long as you have some kind of devotion to a religion, that's what's important. I think that's, that's calculated as a way to not make himself so distinctive from his overall Christian following. So mm. he's, he's playing it, I believe, very in a very, very cunning, but very smart way to... To kind of unite different groups, yes, right? Yes. That's or rather, yeah, not to alienate any group, mm -hmm. let's say. Yes. And of course, he's not the first by any means of, of figures from the far right and from the Manosphere to make overtures to Muslims. And I've written in new lines about the Canadian psychiatrist, Jordan Peterson, who did the same thing. He's invited a lot of Muslim thinkers of, from a variety of different um, movements and attitudes onto his podcast. And while he did have a lot of Muslim fans, something I noticed back in 2018 when I was in Lebanon, his attempts to capitalize on that 
last year, I think. It wasn't terribly successful, I could say. His message to Muslims he recorded actually reduced his Muslim following. There was a terrible backlash. What did Peterson get wrong that Tate got right? I'm sure both of you have a view Um, on this. I'm really curious to hear Mustafa's opinion, but I'm going to just jump in quickly. What Tate offered to Muslims was respect. And this is what the clergy, they just ate that up and also his followers. It was for the first time someone was not addressing Muslims in a condescending tone. One of the first times, I would say, he was very respectful. He spoke of Islam and Muslims very highly. This is where Peterson, who I believe almost has a condescending tone towards many things. But in this particular video, it it sounded like someone who did not know Muslims, who did not know the history and was preaching from a very, very high white horse. And this is the this is the one thing that triggers, I think, everyone, regardless, Manasseur or not. This is something that if you're from the Middle East and you're from Muslims, if you're Muslim and if you're Muslim and from the Middle East, you don't want to. You don't want to hear this. You know, they've heard this constantly. This that they mm-hmm. this is not something that they accept very well. I think that's what he what he got wrong. Yeah, I would agree. The tone was really riling, I think. Mustafa, how do you think? I mean, part of the part of the backlash, I think, goes goes to the, the the question of normalization, and him talking about the Abraham Accords. Right. Do you want to just say a little bit about what they were? Well, it's, it's essentially the the idea that that Muslim countries are normalizing relationships with with the state of Israel, mm-hmm. and to most of the populations in the Arab world outside of their, their, their leaders, autocratic, in some instances, despotic, dictatorial, you name it, have, have decided to, to, to go down this route for business interests and overall have neglected sort of the street sentiment. Well, they don't need to take Palestinian plight. Right, right. They don't they don't need to. If you're from an autocratic society, you don't need to take into account the emotions on the street. Right. One hundred percent. But then Jordan Peterson just missed or didn't think that the sentiments on the street might be different. Yeah, he seemed to believe what was being put out by the regimes around those accords. Yeah, which I don't know. I guess you don't need to think very long to know that (laughs) populations aren't always aligned with their leadership. 100%. And that just, it it was just a massive misstep beyond the things that you've just, that Russia and and yourself have just mentioned in regards to his sort of condescension when speaking. I I think telling a Sunni to get them a Shia pen pal, I think, came into it, which is a little bit like talking to a child right yeah Uh, i don't expect better from a man that owns a twitter themed suit i'm sorry what he has a twitter themed suit that was specifically tailored for him (laughs) what 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 makes something twitter themed bright blue twitter with little birds on the inside (laughs) seriously yeah Oh, I missed that. <laughs> what do you think he was trying to signal there? Was it pre or post Elon? 
It was post Elon, of course, and it was definitely around sort of freedom of speech, quote unquote. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, he actively pursued those Muslim fans that he then patronized and alienated. And Tate has also actively reached out to, to Muslim followers. And then, but you've got the other side going on as well, right? You've got Muhammad Hijab, for example, reaching in the opposite direction. What what are the figures? What are the Muslim figures doing in this realignment? Would you say, Russia? So yeah, you have Muhammad Hijab. You have also there's one character named Myron, I believe. He grew up in a Muslim family. I'm not sure what his ethnic background is. I could not verify that. But he grew up in a Muslim family. I don't know if he was ever religious or not. He seems to have reverted back to Islam. There's another one of Tate's close friends, Sneeko, who I could not 100% also confirm that he had converted, but he was seen praying and with praying in Dubai with Andrew Tate, I believe. And then uh, after his after Andrew's arrest, he was also seen praying for him and saying that this prayer was dedicated to him or something like that. So these are let's, let's we, these are like the Muslim, the English speaking Muslim self-help podcast bros. And there are others. There's also what I've noticed is that in Dubai in particular, many wrestlers, I'm not recalling, because I can't recollect the names. Mustafa, if you can help me out here, it'd be great. But they're, they're like athletes, they're boxers. Many of them, they supported Tate relentlessly. They also also have podcasts. What they're doing is they're just basically honestly copying whatever he's saying. The point that they focus on a lot is the matrix. They talk a lot about the red pill. They talk a lot about global conspiracies. They merge it in a little bit with, they talk a lot about, a lot about Bitcoin and banking too. Uh, but they, what, what they're doing in their, they, I have not seen any, any of them actively reach out to, let's say, any Christian followers. They're still within, they're still within their own Muslim circles. They're mm-hmm. trying to convert more Muslim men to join their cause, as they call, as they call it, because they feel that in their mind, in the Middle East and North Africa and in Muslim communities in the West, that modernity and feminism has also poisoned the minds of these young men and have, has created a generation of Muslim men that are now tolerant towards, for example, their, their, their wives or their partners having Instagram accounts or simply going to work or having, a, having, her, having her own thing, having her own business. They find that problematic. You find that, they, that these men and their followers, their followers in particular, would attack, for example, content creators, regardless of her being in a full hijab and being very conservative. And her account is basically a cooking account. That's it. They would leave comments like, how are you letting so many men look at your wife this way as she cooks? This should be something very special, special only for you. How do you allow your partner to be seen with makeup on? These conversations are happening, but it's kind of still at this point, at least from what I've seen, still within the Muslim community. They have not uh, at least tried to approach Christians. I asked one young man why why he doesn't speak to Christians. He said, well, we're we're basically showing them what we have to offer, our, our lifestyles and how we have always embraced traditional roles, gender roles. And they seem to be they see this. We don't have to reach out to them. They are coming to us. Well, I think one question many people will legitimately have is really about how widespread all this is, because we can point out all the examples very easily. There are just so many. But 
but understanding how widespread it is is very difficult to really pinpoint when when a lot of these things are happening in corners of the internet or even cafes. So how extensive do you think this new ad new admiration for Muslims actually is on the new right and how much appetite really is there for this kind of alliance in Muslim communities with the new right? Mustafa, do you have any sense of that? Well, I mean, I, I can speak for for sort of the, the well, not speak, but speak to the sort of growth of red pill communities in the Middle East and North Africa. So okay. if you look and using using a, a sort of a data tool called CrowdTangle and specifically focused on Facebook, looking at like 18 Facebook pages dedicated specifically to the Manosphere in Arabic, in the first three months of these this year, they experienced about 110% growth. So they ballooned wow. their ranks by more than 74,000 followers in that period. And that is now, that is part of a total of, of roughly hundreds of thousands of followers across various countries in the Middle East and North Africa, specifically focused, uh, again, in the Maghrib, so Morocco, mm -hmm. Tunisia, Algeria, as well as Egypt. But also there are hubs in places like Jordan. Part of this sort of overall movement is also a mimicking of the grift behind red pill communities. This idea of coaching, right? Coaching men. Um, ah, like, like Andrew Tate's Hustler University or something. Correct. So there is a direct sort of mimicking of this where they are essentially in, in the Middle East and North Africa setting up the infrastructure to monetize the red pill sort of ideology, so to speak. And that means that they see an opportunity. So it's, it's intersections with crypto. Mm. It's intersections with a, a pushback against sort of progressive psychology. Mm. One that allows you to a, have a deeper understanding of other people. So presenting a sort of antithesis to this yeah. that's focused on men's rights and traditionalism yeah, and believes westernization and its drive for gender equality and equity is what is essentially destroying the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. So the goal of feminists and their quote unquote Western government backers in the region is to conduct a great reset of men in the region. So you can see it just growing and growing, basically. Essentially. And what they're able to do is obviously draw on a corpus of content that's existed in the West and translate that sometimes directly. So I'll give you another example. The use of Gonzalo Lira's videos, who is a, literally a Kremlinist, uh, Kremlinist, <laughs> and and red pill coach whose videos are in English that were translated into Arabic with Arabic subtitles by these communities and spread far and wide. Oh, wow. That really does summarize a lot of the themes we're talking about. The, the admiration for strong men leaders, the 
the grift, the making money from it all, and the promotion of traditional social structures, right? Another, yeah, and another part of this is is that the Taliban takeover yeah. of Afghanistan served as like an inflection point. The tradition will overcome any push by modernity under the guise of occupation mm -hmm. and that traditional Muslim beliefs, even though that's a Diobandi group, right? <laughs> is, is going to <laughs> essentially overcome anything you put in its way and white supremacists, the alt-right, all imbibed from that Taliban fervor in August, 2021. Yes, exactly. Do you want to come in on this, Rasha? I know that you had you were viewing a lot of those responses when the Taliban took over, weren't you? Yes, yes, and it was it was the the almost level of 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 Schadenfreude expressed by people who identify as white nationalists or or, or Christians and Western Christians in the West and have long despised Muslims and promoted policies to discriminate against them. The level of the, the way they were cheering for the Taliban was was just to me was just fascinating, and it was it stemmed not from at that point not from an admiration towards Islam, but exactly as Mustafa described, it was that longing for tradition to prevail and and defeat modernism, defeat feminism, defeat women's yeah. rights. It stemmed from that. You know, Mustafa, what's really interesting, and I'm sure you've seen this before, Andrew Tate became the red pill figure. In Muslim communities, before he became very popular, the character of, of Thomas Shelby from Peaky Blinders, ah. that, was the, that was the red pill guy. So you would re I would read these long quotes about men having to be men and, and be strong, like the strong leader that you mentioned, Lydia, and it was always Thomas Shelby's picture and his attire. And okay. then I think, I don't know when that, that, that's not, it's not as common today because Andrew Tate and the others, they've replaced him. But mm. I always found that very interesting because Thomas Shelby never, I never, I haven't watched the show, all of it, but he never really came across as, as a misogynist or, or was he? I'm just curious as to why that character was so admired. I mean, I've not watched it. <laughs> there are people in my family who are huge fans, so I should have done my homework. But I think I, I didn't notice any explicit misogyny, but it was the 19th century, correct? So they're living in a patriarchal society. And yeah. more to the point, he's very, very much in charge and will do absolutely anything to retain his hold on his mafia type gang he's got you know it's it's a war of families and and turf wars mm -hmm. and i think he's very keen to commit violence and he's also very keen to have violence committed for cash in his to further his aim so i think it's probably again the strongman role right for for a movement that a claims to be undermining western influence or degeneracy there is a lot of signposting and admiration for Western concepts of what it means to be a man. So there is a there, not just Peaky Blinders, but the use of Patrick Bateman in terms of yes, the the, the American the, Psycho, yeah, yeah, because he is also based, but also killing women, right? Yeah. 
a, a sociopathic, like this longing for a sort of sociopathic existence for some reason is cool. Mm. And that 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 is a direct result of a lot of different things, right? Cross-cultural influence and similarly this idea that as a man in the Middle East or North Africa or as a Muslim in, in the West, you are continually at war with forces that are ultimately undermining your place in the world, whether it's women, whether it's the society itself. Mm. Mm. And that is a force that gives this, this movement meaning. Well, there's a lot to pick up on there. But one thing I'd like to really think about is how different this might be around the world in, in different places. I mean, we got a lot of response to this article, by the way. We can't go through it all. But one very interesting point was made by the by the very good scholar Thomas Pierre, who, who broadly agreed with the article. But he pointed out that America was a very, very different case to Europe. And I mean, to summarize his thread, his last his last tweet in, in a long and thoughtful thread was, quote, to sum it up in Europe, Muslims matter more to the right as scapegoats than as potential allies. Mustafa, would you agree with this, that there's a real difference to the far right in, in America and Europe? I would say yes and no. I'd okay. say they, they play off of one another. Of course, there are different dynamics at play. It, with Muslim communities in Europe versus the United States. Mm -hmm. But I also think that's shifting. Because I mean, I, re I, remember a, I remember a story told to me by a member of Hezb mm -hmm. in, in the UK about when a, a, a now famous ISIS commander came over. He was related to him by marriage. And asked to go to McDonald's and the British Muslims laughed at him and said, bro, how can you call yourself a Muslim and you're still going to McDonald's? Okay. Right. And this guy would later be climb the ranks of the Islamic state. And that's, there is definitely a difference in a, I think, the communities themselves in terms of demographic makeup, mm. but also the overall society in the, the U S is a completely different beast than Europe. Yeah. And, there's, you... and, and, and there's been all this sort of uh, pontification about how assimilation in the United States it's not some forced assimilation. Mm. Right? I don't have to alter my culture, so to speak, yeah. to become one with the fabric of the United States, which some, which is open for debate, of course. Well, you know, even in a, even in that idealized America where you know it's a patchwork and all the rest of it. There is an awful lot of hatred still towards Muslims am amongst the far right. And so 
for many, for many who read our article and were surprised, it, it's, it's hard to imagine any po potential coalition really lasting. So I don't know, how likely do you think that this realignment of this, this, this newfound admiration between bits of the right and bits of the Islamists, do you think it's going to have a lasting impact? I mean, I would never absolve the United States of its hatred for for Muslim populations because that <laughs> that definitely exists. Uh, You're speaking of, yeah. with experience, someone, I feel. Someone who's had that hatred directed towards them. Yep. But I I, I would also add that yeah, your enemy of your enemy. Is that how it goes? Is yeah, he's your friend. Yeah, that yeah. it it holds, doesn't it? But but that's two that's that's two forces in in intention. So the question is, you know, you've got the hatred, mistrust, and characterization of terrorists on the one hand, but then you've got this common enemy of feminism and 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 LGBTQ rights and all the rest of it on the other. So do you think it's possible for these for these for the for the mutual interest to hold such groups together in order to have let's say a political impact do you think it's strong enough to last russia That's what do you think in fact sorry um, I, I think i think in in europe i agree to thomas's point and also mustafa's i'm curious to hear your thought on this lydia is it because in europe women's rights are more profound and stronger than they are in the United States. Uh, so it's very hard to sympathize or create alliance with Muslims knowing how conservative they are in this regard. That's just an observation I, I think I had. In the United States, I think when it comes to LGBTQ issues, particular this controversy, this overblown and exaggerated controversy regarding children in schools, I think it has the potential to last in that regard. I think it relies more on, more on the Muslims, to be honest, if they choose how much they prioritize this issue and that will determine where their vote goes if we're if we I, it's really hard to quantify how prominent this alliance is and mm. in numbers and you mentioned this if you talk to people directly people if, if you talk to parents muslim parents directly there is a lot of angst and there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of fear and uh, there seems to be that that at this point from what i've observed it does seem strong enough in this regard only, not when it comes to immigration rights and all of that. That's a whole other discussion. Though surprisingly, some Muslims actually do take the far right stance on even immigration, but that's a different topic. But when it comes to this, at this particular moment, to me at least, it does it does appear strong enough. I mean, in terms of Europe, maybe this is just because I'm British and I live in Britain, but I do see the UK as slightly separate, and that's not because of Brexit, that actually our attitude to multiculturalism, as opposed to, let's say, the French laicite, has meant that, um, and, and things like our attitudes to faith schools, so there are, for example, Muslim faith schools in, in the country. I think that religion has is plays a slightly different role in society than to France. So Thomas might be right, and I think he actually probably is broadly, to distinguish between the US and America, but there's also great difference between France where he's based and the UK where he has also worked he knows he knows the context very well and I think that difference with 
the UK means that there are different religions or let's say extremists um, within the different religions who are finding common cause over things like LGBTQ in schools, just as they are in America. And I think that the general atmosphere of, of, of secularity in, in many countries drives religious groups together just because they feel more understood. So you will get Muslim parents sending their children to Catholic schools, for example, because they see that there's a respect for religion that there might not be in a secular school. And I, I do think that in the UK, people are finding common cause over these things. Whether it's lasting, I think... Is, is a different subject and I, I, I can't really see it myself, but then I wouldn't have seen it coming to begin with. And whether women's rights are more established here, Russia, I'd love to say yes. <laughs> but the misogyny in this country, I think, is just as bad anywhere else. I mean, uh... misogyny is one thing, but like when it comes to like legal rights, this is what I mean. Like you leave the conversation on abortion, on, you know, when it comes uh -huh. to the divorce and these issues. I just find Europe that Europe is way ahead of the United States. So it's it's hard for generation after generation and Europeans, Brits included, who've grown up with this to to find common cause with ultra conservative, let's say Islam. Whereas yeah. in America, it's still kind of struggling. And now we see the anti-abortion movement, we see the anti-women right, women's rights movement, we see the anti-woke. They, they found it easier to at least find common cause on these points at a time when Muslim communities and in the Middle East, women are making so much progress that it's like it's very surprising for them to see or to feel that these narratives are taking place in the West. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Now, to finish, I wondered if we could actually push beyond what we noticed in our article, which was the Islamism far right connection. And I thought it might be worth considering how unique it actually is to Muslim communities, because you could instead very much see it as a much broader global political movement against globalization, against modernity, in, in favor of perceived traditional values, all these things that we've been talking about that have been unifying certain subcultures. It's not just Islamism. It's Hindu, in, it's the Hindutva in India. It's Eurasianism in Russia. It's Uyoko Dante in groups in Japan. They're all in dialogue with the Euro-American far right and with each other uh, over these sorts of shared values and, and really shared fears. And it really seems to be a global phenomenon. I wondered to finish up with whether either of you had any thoughts on that. Mustafa, we'll start with you. I mean, I'm 100% behind the idea that this is not specific to the Middle East, North Africa, or the larger quote-unquote Muslim world, that this is a global phenomenon. And part of this, of course, goes back to, and I keep on saying this, the internet and the sort of the tribalism that has essentially happened across the internet like when people talk about the internet they're not necessarily talking about just going on to like a search engine and searching for things they're talking about being on social media platforms typically and social media platforms have proliferated to a point where you have alternative platforms you have closed platforms you you have a number of different platforms for different audiences and it's created this sort of tribalism 
And at the same time, across these various platforms and these these tribes, so to speak, they're beginning to see sort of commonalities or share from one another. People aren't just on one platform. They're on multiple. And they are imbibing from a, a range of different ideas, whether noxious or not, and are ultimately shaping their worldview based on on, on what they are interacting with and believe in, right? So do you see it growing? I definitely see it growing. I mean, these are things that we've been dealing with for a long time, or at least speeding up, right? This sort of, this sort of blending, right? I'll give you an example. Maybe this is a bad example. When Shireen Abu Akleh was killed by an Israeli sniper, hmm. a red pill community online on Facebook was angry, not because of the incident, but that Palestinian women were now the face of the Palestinian resistance. And that was a infuriating to this specific page community because it was subjugating men and their contributions to the Palestinian cause. Oh, isn't that extraordinary that your commitments take you to that point? Rasha, were you aware of that example? No, no, I, I was not aware that Shirin Abu Akhle's tragic uh, assassination was so triggering for men. To the contrary, because when I, I was monitoring the funeral and everything, there seemed to be so many so much admiration, but again, with these red pill circles that are way deep, you know, under the underground, it's, I mean, it's not very shocking. Women, even in their death, apparently are triggering to these, to these folks. But, you know, on to comment on how global it is, it, it, you know, it all coincided in a time when there was universal distrust in what people will describe as the establishment, the establishments in their country and the global establishment. And they found themselves supporting leaders and, and, elected presidents who claim to be against this establishment. And we see the hints of conspiracy theories, we see the hints of anti-Semitism, and all of this coming together definitely is not just the Muslim community. I think the Muslim community overall might be less impacted by all of this. It's a very specific, unique case in the United States that I think regard, requires more research, especially with elections coming up. Mm -hmm. But to see how it's, it's going around in the world, because on, on this small, and I'll go back to our prime example in this episode in the article, Andrew Tate, the many, many videos of him on TikTok, Instagram. And if you look at the comments, they're coming from all over the world and not just from Muslims. You have from Hindus, from different religions, from Asia, all the way from all over the world that are supporting him. And the claim in this case is not, doesn't really talk about his religion, doesn't even talk about misogyny necessarily, but the fact that he's standing up to the matrix, that he has exposed the matrix. So that seems to be a common theme when it comes to how universal this is. Mustafa Ayad, Rasha Al-Aqidi, thank you very much. Of course, thank you, Lydia, for hosting. Thank you, Lydia. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. You can find Mustafa Ayad on Twitter at Mustafa Ayad. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.